Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we start a new series. <sighs> okay, you make that sound, but I just need it for the record. This is David's idea. I mean, it is. And also, I'm beginning to think that I enjoy a movie musical as much or more than a live musical. Fair, but also weird. Uh, we're doing musicals. We're doing movie musicals. Movie musicals. There are a lot of musicals that have been released this year and that are still to be released this year. So it's just like, we got to get this done. And there are so many old musicals. That there are, just period, because it was a staple. And there were so many that we hadn't seen. Now, we've tackled some in the past. I've made David watch Singing in the Rain. Great. Which is great. Sound of Music. Near perfect. Near perfect. And then also Hello, Dolly, uh, which is has some wonderful moments, but Walter Matthau ruined it. Walter Matthau. And there's also Funny Face. Yeah, Funny Face. I'm angry about that one because the Gilmore Girls lied to me. It's got one good scene and it's not a musical number. No, it shouldn't be a musical scene. <laughs> and uh, then we also have Funny Girl and Funny Lady, which were also horrible. Not horrible, but not great. Okay, funny Girl was okay. Funny Lady was a train wreck. That was not good. With an actual train. So yeah, it was a lot. So I love musicals in life. David does not. Historically, I've had issues. I was, I think I was just scarred by the old school Oklahoma, you know? That's fair. Um, Rodgers and Hammerstein doesn't translate to film very well. I'm just going to say that. It's not, it's not good. But today, we are starting with the film that is now tied for the oldest movie we have ever watched for this podcast. Whoa! In that it is from 1933. Our tie with this film is The Invisible Man, also from 1933. And we are watching 42nd Street. When the leading lady of a Broadway musical breaks her ankle, she is replaced by a young unknown actress who becomes the star of the show. Yes, so not only is it a musical, it's a backstage musical. I mean, this is clearly a film that cemented like 8,000 other films. Mm -hmm. And yet it's still got... Look, this movie is thin on plot. Like, thin on plot. And yet, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Mm Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit with Invisible Man. The older you go back, the more chance you have for thin characters, kind of cheap writing. Because, you know, half the time these big movies were just spectacles to be spectacles. Mm -hmm. And so you've always got that concern. You also have that concern that people are going to be way too overacting. Mm -hmm. That's not the case in this movie. And in fact, there's a number of sequences, especially in like the early part of this movie, where I was like, y'all actually did some like full-on reality justice to what this would be like. This film is very, I don't want to say it's true to life, but it's not far off. It is definitely one of those movies where it's like, this is obviously heightened reality. Sure. Like it wouldn't be this bad or this thing, but it's very much trying to give you a real glimpse into what it would be like to be on Broadway in 1933 Mm -hmm. when it was a total machine. Well, it still is. Yeah, that's true. A lot of this stuff still happens. I like that glimpse into what this life is and what this work is. So, you know, that's always kind of interesting. It had a budget of $439,000. 
It grossed $2.3 million. This film was so financially successful that it saved Warner Brothers from bankruptcy. And you think about that's $450 million to $2.3 million in 1933. Yeah, $439,000, not million. Just the inflation alone on that would be bonkers. Yep, so it was released on March 9th, 1933, and it also single-handedly rescued the movie musical. It had been considered money losing. All talking, all dancing musicals typically suffered from severe camera restrictions and it didn't have good musical staging. So the public was like, no, thank you. And so when Universal lost money on King of Jazz in 1930, it put an unofficial moratorium on the musical and no other studio wanted to risk producing one. I can sense that there's an electricity to the way this is staged and filmed. And and I I know because of who's involved, mm-hmm. partly why that is. But even so, to hear that this is a Hail Mary for movie musicals in some ways, that's saying something. I think that really speaks to the writing and the story itself, because the story is what makes all of this interesting. There's stuff you could cut, speed up, clean up, but the story is what's interesting. The story is what's fun this is a movie with a lot of cheese factor Mm -hmm. because it's 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 a musical and like a very simple musical Mm -hmm. yet in that simplicity they also stuck to a relatively simple story sure and that gives us right to our writers there is source material with this this was a novel written by bradford ropes who was a dancer actor director on stage and his aim with this was to exposed the exploitation of chorus girls on Broadway. He actually described the work as Uncle Tom's Cabin for the chorus girl. Okay. It's a 1930s reference. Not great. Yeah. But that's really what this whole thing is. It's all about this. these chorus girls being exploited, being passed over, being, you know, worked to death, essentially. It's a chorus line, but like way more of an institutional expose. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's way more interesting. This was Bradford's first thing. And after this, he also wrote for Stage Mother, Get Into Your Dance, Sing, Dance, Plenty Hot. And he did a bunch of other stuff where he added dialogue or did a screenplay for just a lot of things that we wouldn't really know. But he worked a lot. Like this became his meal ticket. I want to read this book. It sounds incredible. It sounds great. Um, We also have two screenplay credits. We've got Ryan James, who previously did Best of Enemies, which he also directed, and The Gift of Gab. After this, he also did Exclusive, and these guys wrote a ton of stuff. It's just these are these are their hits. Yeah, like it's it's very interesting seeing credits from the 30s and 40s because it was such a system that they've got like 50 million credits a year (laughs) yeah they just have so much stuff and so much of those things that we wouldn't know so that's where getting giving people's credits is just kind of like we're gonna do their hot their big hits or the ones that we definitely have heard of uh we also have jane seymour on screenplay who this was their big their big break and after this they wrote gold diggers of 33 and footlight parade which were big hits also for some of the stars in this film as well So what do we think about the writing? I think you're absolutely on the money of the story being what propels it forward. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because you go, 
well, it's a thin plot. And it's like, it's really not that it's thin. It's just very simple and basic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than it is. You know, we make this movie today and you're mm-hmm. going to have to complicate it a bit because the audience has seen this before. It has to be more than just the chorus girl who's being abused because that's what it is. The chorus girl, the, something else has to be going on to complicate the life of the chorus girl. Well, we make this film today. We also talk about the crew. Yeah. We, we do because they're also being abused this way. And it's actually uh, being uh, fought right now in the industry as oh, yeah. it should, which is great. And definitely support your crew. Uh, you know, the actors get all the love, but crew doesn't show up. Nobody sees the actors. No. Solidarity Diazzi. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, making this movie today would just, it would just expand the scope of who's getting used and abused. So, yeah, I mean, this, that's why it's still relevant and why it was still entertaining to watch today. One of the things that got changed from the novel to the movie adaptation is that the director, Julian Marsh, is gay and he is having a relationship with Billy Lawler. They took that out of the movie because of the decency laws of the time, which that wouldn't happen nowadays. Nope. The relationship could still be considered inappropriate because of the power dynamic, but the relationship would still have been. That's another thing they could have shown in a Today movie, but they replaced it here with a reference with him telling Andy Lee to come come back to his apartment. He's lonesome. Yeah. They hint at it without being as explicit as the book is. Filmmakers were really good about throwing in references on the sly when they wanted to make the point to the, to audiences who were savvy, but then mm-hmm. not run afoul of, you know, the government. Sure. There is something about the fact, too, that when they jump into song, either it is a full on musical number mm-hmm. or it does the perfect thing of you feel like this person needs to sing. Well, and so much that. I feel like they kept all their songs on stage. They really did for this. They did. They kept all their songs on stage, which was great. But also we see practice and some of their songs are just for practice, which is fine. And when we get to the actual performances, they're either we get to see the full thing that we only saw a very tiny snippet of, or we see something we've never seen before, which I also love because we didn't get any song performance fatigue from this type of show which you usually would. Not only that, you know, we, we, we see the rehearsal. We see, okay, we're hearing music, but it's just them going through the choreography over and over and over and over and over again. And again, I love that because that's stuff that actually happens. I love the fact that the choreography and the blocking are done and nobody is invested because you aren't at that point in the rehearsal process. You're not fully on your game trying to perform. You're just trying to get it in your body. Yeah, it down. Be like, what am I supposed to be doing when? I have no clue. So yeah, this script slaps. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's good. And it's so easy. It feels kind of effortless in a way mm-hmm. that initially I think you catch yourself thinking, well, there's nothing here. And you're like, no, there's a lot here. Mm-hmm. But they've just rounded off the edges so well that it feels very effortless. I do want to see an updated version that takes place today, but I don't think that would be hard to do. And that's the thing. They've kind of done updated versions throughout the years. Sure. You know, a chorus line and showgirls. Sure. But I want to see this specific show. Yeah. Updated for today. Oh, 42nd Street meets Black Swan. 
Kind of, yeah. A little bit. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be interesting. All right, let's move on to our director. It's Lloyd Bacon. He started directing shorts in 1922, and he has 130 directing credits on IMDb between 1922 and 1953. Yeah. This guy was just, he was part of the machine. <laughs> if you if you worked in movies in the 1930s, you have like 500 credits. You just do. So it's a ton of shorts before this. And then after this, his other big hits were Footlight Parade and Newt Rockney All-American. Win one for the Gipper. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's all of them. Originally, Mervyn Leroy was supposed to direct this, but he had to hand the, uh, the reins over to Lloyd Bacon when filming for I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang ran over schedule. Mm, that was another big name 30s hit. Yep. So what do we think about Mr. Bacon? It is hard to tell where the stage choreography plays a big part in this. Mm -hmm. That being said, the choice of how to film sequences, especially those rehearsal scenes, Mm -hmm. the almost surreal kind of German expressionist feeling with the weird angles and the like sped up feeling and choreography that stuff is really intelligent. You f- start to feel this sort of everything's going a bit wonky here. So what I love and I noticed is that we play back and forth with the proscenium a lot mm-hmm. when we're in the theater. And it would be so easy. And we've seen it with other musicals where it's like, OK, they're performing on the stage and we're watching on the stage. So you are either looking directly out at the audience or you're looking directly at the stage. And they did this thing where they were halfway between and you're looking one direction or the other so your stage left or stage right but you were straddling both so like the camera's on the stage and we're just looking back and forth a little bit and i love that because you are in it which you're supposed to be this is a backstage musical you should be a part of the stage action i mean the the shot that really kills is when they have the big choreography number Mm -hmm. and he says camera up over bird's eye view Mm -hmm. And you're like, holy shit, I don't think I've seen that in a modern thing about Broadway. Mm -hmm. Nobody thinks to do that. And that's exactly the shot that you need to see the scope of how many people are being put through paces to do this one fucking number. Mm -hmm. Like, all of that is so smart. And that's, I think, where he really shines and really packs a punch. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, it's a very solid but basic script. It's those choices that really make you feel like you're in the middle of all of this. Oh, yeah. And it's effective. And I don't feel like it's a thing that they overused. Especially because he filmed it. Then when they switched to scenes that were just, you know, parlor scenes, mm-hmm. he just switches to straight up camera in a room, mm-hmm. which it gives you that feeling of when you're on the stage, everything is wild and and woolly and all over the place and then when you're back in the room you're catching your breath for half a second Mm -hmm. and it it adds to the pacing like the editing of this movie is exquisite as well it just keeps moving relentlessly Mm -hmm. so we do have another director that we kind of have to talk about and they're not a director but they're i i feel like they're on par for this type of movie and that's our choreographer and our choreographer is busby berkeley before this it was just a few small things or not really small but not as big things but he did this and upon the completion of the 42nd street scene he got a contract 
with the studio. Yeah. This was his first film with Warner Brothers. And that made them, they, they promoted from a weekly contract to a term contract, which is a huge deal. Because it's that good. <laughs> yeah. And so he choreographed for Gold Diggers of 1933, Footlight Parade. He went on to do one of the best cut dances ever, the Scarecrow's Dance in The Wizard of Oz, which if you have not seen that footage, go look at it. It's gorgeous. <laughs> I think it's very well documented in the show that I love Wizard of Oz. I'm practically a historian about it at this point. Amazing. What do we think? Holy shit. It's great. Like, it, it is hard to fully reckon with it until you get to the end. Mm -hmm. And that's smart directing. They're, they're keeping it hidden in their pocket. Mm -hmm. But even at the beginning, you can tell how much work they've had to put in to get this choreography right mm -hmm. and how much he's done. And then when we get to the actual show and the three numbers we get and how just magnificent they are. Because I mean, you see parodies of this constantly. Oh, Busby sure. Berkeley is, you know, one of the most referenced choreographers in just whatever. And then you see it for real and you see just how intricate it mm -hmm. is to get the bodies in the right place to make it all work mm -hmm. to how they're going to arrange all them to get the look right. I mean, the shot through the legs panning through to, you know, the bird's eye view shot down mm -hmm. with the, the bodies moving in a pattern. Like all of that stuff is so wildly inventive. Oh, yeah. And that shot through the legs has been recreated hundreds of times. Uh, most famous in the big lebowski but it it never looks as good as this big lebowski did it amazing job this is just the first time they did it so it was just like oh, it's magical and it does look great it does when i think other people have done it well too but it's just are you doing it as a gimmick or to effectively tell your story that's that's always the kicker i will say one thing that helps is that we saw this on HBO Max. Mm -hmm. So if you have it, it is there. And the restoration that they've done on this print is fantastic. It's very well done. And they it, it had been sent to the Library of Congress for preservation. Like, I've seen a handful of 30s movies. I've never seen a print that looked this pristine. Yeah, it looks really good. And also their captioning for it is also very well done. Nice job, HBO. And, well, it's not necessarily HBO, but... Warner. Warner. All right, let's get into our cast. Okay. We start with Warner Baxter as Julian Marsh. And again, with all of these performers, they were big deal at this time. They have a lot of credits that are very difficult to pare down to be like, what were the highlights? So we've done our best. <laughs> uh, before this, he was in The Great Gatsby and just he started working in 1918. After this, he did more stuff, but he... Uh, started doing a reoccurring character uh, called Robert Orday and Crime Doctor starting in 1943, and he passed away in 1951. Hmm. What do we think of Warner Baxter as the director, Julian Marsh? He's really good. He is that manic director. But not in a, in a way that feels super stereotypical. I think this is the prototype. That's what's interesting for a lot of these characters is they, they are sort of that well, everybody got modeled off of this, but they don't feel laughable. 
Like a lot of them feel, yeah, I believe that this guy has had several nervous breakdowns and feels like he's got to get a hit to to make he's his last make money. money. He's going to make money and keep his name in the papers, like to keep going, to keep a career. So all his frustration doesn't feel like a cartoon character. It feels like a man who's on his last hope. Sure. <laughs> That's what we got you for, Julian. Julian Marsh, the greatest musical comedy director in America today. What do you mean today? All right. Tomorrow, too. Say, with your reputation... Uh, Do you ever try to cash a reputation at a bank? I mean, that's for one reason only. Money. Money? You? Say, with all the hits you've had, you ought to be worth plenty. Uh, I ought to be, but I'm not. Did you ever hear of Wall Street? He feels like a tragic, scared character. Mm -hmm. That's the the testament to his acting. The only time I don't like him was when he was working with Peggy. Because... I felt like that's when we needed to see him be more vulnerable. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just an acting or directing choice or if that's part of just the script, but I feel like that was when we needed to see a tone with him where it became about, look, I need this. This could be your biggest break ever. So we got to make this work. Like it, but it, instead it was just a lot of berating. Yeah. They stuck to main character mm-hmm. points without him breaking out of it for half a second to get the desperation across. Yeah, that that was a mistake. We needed to see him a little more desperate. The only time we see him slightly vulnerable is when he's with Andy Lee. And and even that is not, it's not a lot. It's not enough. That sounds like a script thing to me more than anything. And partially an acting choice. But like, you're right. It's just, it's just one little scene that has to get fixed there. Sure. Next, we have B.B. Daniels as Dorothy Brock. Before this, she started working in film in 1916. She was in the Maltese Falcon. After this, she didn't do a whole lot. Her last role was in The Lions Abroad in 1955, and she passed away in 1971. What a spitfire. She's great. Because yeah. the, second, the second she shows up, you understand why she's the star. Mm-hmm. She plays the star. And I love that. And then, you know, and then she does the overly dramatic thing with her, her secret boyfriend. <laughs> and then you know she does the petty thing with Beggy, and she's like, "You, this is your fault that I broke my ankle, and how dare you? You're taking my part." But they also just didn't get the sense of like, "Oh, I'm free now." Yeah, that again was just a, a an acting directing choice where it was just like her her going to Peggy in this moment was really about her being like, "I'm free. If you really do this, I'm free." You know, Peggy, when I started for the theater tonight. I wanted to tear your hair out. And then I started thinking, well, after all, I've had my chance. And now it's your turn. I've had enough. For five years has kept me away from the only thing I ever wanted. (laughs) And a funny thing, a broken ankle was the thing that made me find it out. And I I didn't get that from her. I just got the anger. And it's like, I understand you want to be intimidating and be like, yeah, I hurt my ankle, but... This is my role. Well, what I do like, too, is that you also get a sense that her anger isn't ever at Peggy Mm -hmm. or necessarily at anybody else. It's anger that's built out of the humongous amounts of stress that she has in her life. Mm -hmm. Sure. Like, there's so much of the lashing out in this movie that feels very natural The thing that, again, would make a huge update for today is that, you know, before we get to the final triumphant show arc, Mm -hmm. we have an acknowledgement of like, 
man, this is fucked up. <laughs> the ringer that we're being put through. <laughs> like, yeah. that's the one thing that's not here, which I get. Well, just that this is awful, but I love it because that's part of it. Part of it is you love what you're doing and it's painful and there's a there's a human cost to it, but you love it. Yeah, There's a part of it that you were addicted to. Like there is that bit. And that's not to shame anybody who's working crazy long hours to make end meets and trying to move up in the industry. But that's just there. There is an element of like, I'm putting myself through all of this because I get to do the thing that I love if I do it. Which, yeah, seeing a little bit of that from your your star would have been interesting. And definitely today we would see some of that. I think it's just you don't expect that level of nuance from a movie from 1933. No. And it's there. It's not completely there, but it is there. It's not as obvious, but you can see the undercurrent of it, which, again, I love, which is why. This type of story has been remade so many times. This is why it became a successful stage production in the 80s. Yeah. And it really it really speaks to the source material being so good. Mm-hmm. Next, we have George Brent as Pat Dennings. Before this, he was in Under Suspicion, and he worked with Betty Davis a lot. <laughs> they were, like, on screen together a lot. They had an affair. It was a whole thing. That's why he's famous. <laughs> is his work with Betty Davis. Um, He started doing TV in the 1953. After this, he did a ton of stuff and he started doing TV in 1953 and he worked until his death in 1979. He's fine. He is the exact right note to be charming, but also very different from Billy because he can't be the same as Billy. Billy's the young hot dude. He's got to be the older hot dude, which is fine. And so he, he does that very well. And the dude who has no stake in the theater. No, he does. He's not getting roles. That's his whole problem. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's basically going and doing, you know, community theater. Yeah. But for him, if he has a public relationship with Dorothy, that hurts her. Yeah. So he's in a very weird role in this time. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Which I like. He also navigates... By feeling that awkwardness. Sure. Which I like. You can see that in his acting. Where he's like, I don't understand what's going on for me. Like, I don't know where I fit in anymore. Oh, pretty girl. I'm going to go talk to her. He has lines that feel a little cringy when he's talking about, you know, I wish I was was more supportive. But then you also have to factor in that was like, well, in 1933, that was supposed to be his social role. So he's like. Everything I've ever been taught and know has been thrown completely upside down for me. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, he's in a, he's just in a very weird position, and I love it. Actually, all of the men in this show are in very weird positions. A lot of the ladies, too, but like the men are kind of all screwed. In different ways, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, his hair was completely gray by the time he started working for the WB, and his hair had to be dyed black. That makes sense. It's a fun little note about George Brent. <laughs> Next, we have Ruby Keeler as Peggy Sawyer. This is her film debut. Wow. She was later paired with Dick Powell in seven films. Dick Powell being the guy who plays Billy. So they did 42nd Street, Gold Diggers of 1933, Footlight Parade, Dames, Flirtation Walk, Shipmates Forever, and Colleen. They hung out a lot after this. Well, on Ingenues Forever. Ingenues forever. In her heyday with 
carefully counted slow motion, she was declared the world's fastest tapper and was inducted into the International Tap Dance Hall of Fame in 2019. There you go. What do we think of Ruby Keeler? It takes a little bit for you to get her. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not exactly sure what the hell this character's going to be. <laughs> sure. First of all, are you even going to be in this movie for that long? Or are you just the doe-eyed? She's so incredibly awkward and you were, were nervous. It's like, how naive are you? That's fair. Yeah. And it turns out when it comes to business, she's very naive. But when it comes to men, she's no fool. <laughs> so I, again, I love that balance because, you know, we will get to her sidekicks in a moment. It would have been so easy to play off as just a dumb, dumb, just dumb, dumb left, right. And that would normally, that still happens today. But here in 1933, our, essentially our lead, our true lead of the story. Yeah. Is fresh face, a little naive about the business, but she's no dummy. And she's tough, but not in a way that makes you... Bristle. Not in a way that makes you bristle, and in a way that makes you still feel like she's the ingenue of the story. You still want to root for her. You still want her to win. Yes. And she also does nothing wrong. Like, she doesn't hurt anybody. She doesn't back up. She just happens to be in the right place or the wrong place at the right time, essentially. Uh, it's great. Mm-hmm. She is adorable. And yes, that girl can tap dance her ass off. God damn. <laughs> like that scene, I was like, like, I'm, I was never a tap dancer. I'm not very good at it. You have to have really crazy ankles to be able to pull that shit off. And oh, dear God, she's phenomenal. Like you just see, you, you see the start of the 42nd Street number and you're going, okay, well, you know, and then she starts in and you're like, oh, shit. Oh, this is going to build. This is going to keep going. God damn. <laughs> uh-huh. Love it. Next, we have Guy Kibbe as Abner Dillon. Uh, his first credit was in 1929. Again, in a ton of stuff. After this, he was also in Gold Diggers of 1933, Footlight Parade, Captain Blood, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Our Town. He passed away in 1956. What do we think of Guy Kibbe? What a creep. He is a creep, but like, as he's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> he's supposed to be a creep i love the fact that he's a creep and then yet throughout the rest of the movie you go nah you're just a rascal like everything about this is wrong but he's just kind of a dodo it's just like i paid for your musical you're supposed to be my girlfriend now that's how this works right that's how, that's how this works oh you think you're gonna go date other people well then i'm not gonna pay for your musical anymore yeah, it's pretty awful, but we know that shit totally happened. Well, yeah, that's the other part of it. It's like, that's pretty true to life. Uh, I mean. Still happens today. He was the right amount of, like, fuddy-duddy. He's a creep, but he's the right amount. He's the right amount of creep to not just make you go Bleh, the whole time. Like, I was never worried that we were about to see a sexual assault. Yes. It's just... With his words saying the things that you're like, ugh, gross. Exactly. And that's and that's what it has to be for you to be entertained still. This character's role, I would like to see omitted from the updated version of this. Because this, gross. But the nuance, goddamn. The nuance is very well done. What they imply without doing is like, yeah, I know what you're angling for, dude. It takes a lot of restraint and intelligent writing 
to get that balance right. Mm-hmm. And for a time period where you expect none of that, mm-hmm. it's all there. Again, that's what makes this movie so fun to watch is you're like, well, goddamn, how did you how can y'all do that in 1933? And I watch shit in 2021 that can't figure this balance out. Like, well, and this is where, okay, so we, we know in this time there's a ton of decency laws. Yes. Governing filmmaking. And we've talked about this throughout the show where sometimes limits make you more creative. It's true. Having no barriers, which essentially, with the exception of getting yourself into porn territory, filmmakers now can do whatever they want. It's just a matter of getting the rating you want for the audience that you are intending to put your film in front of. So you can say the F word all you want. You can have boobs and penises. You can do whatever you want. There's 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 just one hard limit, and that is live sex, essentially. And, you know, we see people just be like, hmm, nobody told you no. <laughs> like, you needed some more people around you to say no to you, and your film would be better. You know, going back to the days of the Hayes Act and decency laws is a yeah. terrible fucking idea. Sure. I, do, I don't want that. Yeah. But I think if directors and creative teams could figure out creative self-imposed restrictions mm-hmm. on the stories they were telling sure. to say, we want to tell a very specific type of story. And again, all this really requires is forethought, which some directors do really well. Forethought, sensitivity readers. That kind of stuff. And and just to say, like, there is a time and place to be incredibly explicit or strong in your messaging Mm -hmm. if you are telling that type of story. But so often that's not the story that Mm -hmm. the movie makers want to tell. And then they put stuff in that, whether they intend it or not, takes away from the kind of story they wanted to tell. You're just like, why did you even bother doing this? It doesn't serve the purpose of what you want to do. Yeah. It makes me think of who's doing this really well nowadays. Who's using way more restraint than they are actually required to to tell a very effective story. And my first thought is Adam McKay Mm. with the big short and vice with those stories. It would have been so easy to be so explicit and in your face with things. And he showed so much restraint with how he told those stories to get his ultimate message across. I think also of a movie like Another Round and Thomas Venterberg. Yes. Yes. Because that could have gotten re- I mean, and it does, it's a movie that does get dark, but there's so much restraint with what darkness they choose to show you. You could have either gone way too off the rails dramatically, or you could have made it too light. Well, you could have made it a parody, just all a joke. And there are moments of levity where they're just being goofy. Uh, another round is the is the movie about the the gentleman who decided to be a little bit drunk every day for like a year as an experiment and it turned out it was maybe the best movie of last year yeah those were great movies with restraint and i i think that helped with some of these things 42nd street figured that balance out and they did it 80 goddamn years ago yeah is that how long ago that was just about i feel really old i feel so old uh jeez okay sorry hold on hold on they did that goddamn 90 years ago Fuck you. <laughs> All right. This hurts. This hurts so much. <laughs> wow. Anyway, back to the cast. All right. Next, we have Una Merkel as Lorraine Fleming. Before this, she was in Abraham Lincoln, the Maltese Falcon, and Daddy Longlegs. After this, she was in a ton of stuff. She was in Destry Rides Again, which has the famous scene with her fighting with Marlene Dietrich. Uh, she was in The Parent Trap in 1961. 
And also in 1961, she was in Summer and Smoke, for which she was nominated for an Oscar for her role. What do we think of Una Merkel? I feel like we can't talk about her without talking about her cohort in some ways. Well, she's uh, one of the chorus girls, one of the heavily featured ones, along with, oh, I'll go ahead and talk about her, Ginger Rogers as Anne Lowell, also known as Anytime Annie. She was in a handful of films before this. After this, she was also in Gold Diggers of 1933. And then, you know, she's just like kind of known for dancing around with this old dude named Fred Astaire. They did 10 movies together. They did Top Hat, Swing Time, The Story of Vernon and Irene Castle, Shall We Dance, Roberta, The Gay Divorcee, Follow the Fleet, Flying Down to Rio, Carefree, and The Barclays of Broadway. Just a, a, a little known actress from the, their 30s and 40s. Sure. Ginger fucking Rogers. Ginger fucking Rogers. And Una fucking Merkel, because they together are hilarious. Oh my God. <laughs> and you hear the name Ginger Rogers, like, oh, she's going to have a, she's going to be a big role. And she's really not. She's just a very featured role. She steals every scene she is in. They both do, because Lorraine is playing the ditzy blonde. They make comments about the fact that she's overperoxide her hair. And then Ginger Rogers is Anytime Annie, which is slang for being a common prostitute. Uh, yeah. Which she goes in full gold digger mode later because she hooks up with Abner. It's great. I mean, yeah. God, Annie's first entrance with the accent. <laughs> I beg your pardon. It's okay, lady. This is a two-way street. I beg your pardon. Uh, but are you by any chance the, the, uh, what is the word, uh, the stage manager? Hey, Anne, come out from under that accent. I see you. Lolly! Darling! <laughs> you remember Anne Lowell? Not any time Annie. Say, who could forget her? She only said no once, and then she didn't hear the question. And just faking being posh in high society. It's so absurd because she's just <laughs> she's just trying to get her hook so she'll be noticed in this sea of legs. It's that's true. Like they just ask ladies to 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 step forward, lift your skirts so we can see your legs. And it's just like, yeah, that's sometimes what it comes down to. And it, they're just both hilarious. And then you instantly think they're gonna be super mean to Peggy. And they're not. They're not. They they're into like, oh, she's new. She's she's a little green. Let's help her out. <laughs> I feel like it's not entirely benevolent. It's like, let's put her with us so we look better by comparison. It, that's definitely a part of it. <laughs> but then they also just like her because she's not she's not causing trouble to them. So it's like, let's keep her along because she's fine. Mm -hmm. Which is adorable. It's so cute. <sighs> and then their actual part of the musical number is so fucking fun <laughs> the shuffle off to shuffle off to buffalo which is the best sequence in the film in my opinion i know 42nd street is really cool but i to me my you know i look at it as a stage thing and i'm like look at all the things that are happening on that stage which had to actually happen in order for them to film and it's so clever and so interesting and i would love to see that in person on a real stage yeah which, which you could you could do yep and they're precious in that it's just these two ladies on the train. So cute. Matrimony is baloney. You'll be wanting alimony in a year or so. Still they go and shuffle. Shuffle off to Buffalo. 
and she knows as much as we know. She'll be on her way to Reno. Well, he still has dough. She'll give him the shuffle when they're back, back from Buffalo. So cute. I love them. It's so entertaining. They get so many digs. And it's funny because they've got little jokes and digs that both feel a little bit of the time. But at the same time, you get completely in context. Exactly. Even if there's some 30 slang mixed into it, it does not miss you. No. Which, again, is huge. Uh, next, we have Dick Powell as Billy Lawler. Before this, he didn't do a ton, but after this, he was in Gold Diggers of 1933. No, Footlight Parade. No way! Midsummer Night's Dream, Colleen, Christmas in July, Murder My Sweet, Cornered, and The Bad and the Beautiful. Also, fun, weird connection to a film that we've previously talked about in the movie Day of the Locust. He is portrayed by his real-life son, Dick Powell Jr. So weird. <laughs> so that's kind of weird. A movie that we absolutely hated is connected to this movie, which we think is delightful. <laughs> what do we think about Dick Powell? It feels like it's a little hard to gauge him as an actor. Mm-hmm. He's playing the male ingenue. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, there's a lot of that role that is just, I am a statue mm-hmm. and I am going to show you Broadway. Yeah. Like, he's he's sort of a cipher more than he is a full-on character. Yeah, he kind of is. But he's not in the movie a ton. No, and that helps. <laughs> it helps. But again, it's kind of nice that you see this guy who he's the lead in the in-musical show. And he's just being nice to this chorus girl because he thinks she's interesting and cute. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's fun. And, you know, he's not up to any shenanigans. So, yeah. I do like the character thing of, like, he is also not, like, the talent. (laughs) No. He's there because he's a little bit of a draw. People know his name. He's the young guy who still looks young. Mm -hmm. And he's got a good voice and he can dance. So, like, he's it. He's hot shit right now. He's the Zac Efron at the moment. He can kind of dance. Eh, he can fake. He can get away with it. It'll be That's the joke is that it's, like, he can he can make it work, but he's not a yeah. dancer. <laughs> sure, it's all face and voice, but, you know, those are important. I think he's appropriately adorable. When you look at him next to, uh, you know, Billy next to Pat, you're just like, okay, they're yeah. cut from the same cloth. It's just one guy's, you know, 15, 20 years farther down the road. It's true. Next, we have George E. Stone as Andy Lee, the dance director. Uh, before this, he was in Seventh Heaven, The Racket, Cimarron. The front page, five-star final. After this, he was in Viva Viva, Anthony Adverse, The Robe, Some Like It Hot, Ocean's Eleven, and Perry Mason. Actually, he started going blind in the 1960s, and he feared he would never work again. And his friend and actor Raymond Burr gave him a job on the Perry Mason series as the court reporter, and he appeared in 44 episodes. That's pretty great. That's very sweet and awesome. Camaraderie. I appreciate it. What do we think of George E. Stone? You know, there's a certain point where the backstage actors blend. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. Sure. They, they're they all cut in the, we have to keep moving. We have to keep going. Mm-hmm. He kind of like is one of the front runners of that behind Julian, but a little more practical. I really do enjoy the character choice of talking out of both sides of his mouth. Oh, yeah. But what's interesting is like he is the middleman mm-hmm. and he 
perfectly signifies that. He sees all the actors just like wearing out. And he looks at Julian. He's like, we got it. We got to call it like you're going to lose them. And then Julian goes off and he's like, all right, everybody up. You heard what the man said. And he goes right back and forth. It's such a really smart split on his character of like wanting to try to help the actors, but knowing he's got a job to do. Yeah. I just love his interaction with Lorraine. That too. Because he's, he's trying, it's like, this is my girl, but also like, you're not the best. (laughs) It's just, he's doing the double speak with her too. We're just like, (laughs) yes. And then no, it's very convoluted in a way that's very fun. And the comedy comes when he gets himself crossways on it all. And he's like, wait, no, what? Uh, No, damn it. (laughs) I'm not happy with any of the things that happened. (laughs) Pretty good. All right. Now we get to trivia. Trivia. At the end of the 42nd Street number, Billy and Peggy pull down a curtain or shade with the word asbestos written on it, which is a little confusing to us. Live performance theaters were at the time required to have a curtain made of asbestos that would separate the stage from the audience in the event of an onstage fire. So the presence of the curtain is important. Yep. I mean, fire curtains are still a thing. We just don't make them out of cancerous glass. They're just not made of asbestos and they don't say asbestos. (laughs) Yep. Um, And usually they don't say anything on them. No. In the finale, dancers on stage pass a sword named Ritikers. This is named after Warner Brothers art director, Hugh Ritiker, who labored at the studio for two decades, but did not get screen recognition until two years after this film was made. It's likely he had a hand in designing this set as well. Jesus Christ, Warner Brothers. Yeah, uh, credit your people, everyone. <sighs> Again, goes back to that, like, backstage is just as fucking important as front stage. You don't have a front stage without a backstage. Not even a little bit. The movie's line, Sawyer, you're going out a youngster, but you've got to come back a star, was voted number 87, movie quote by the American Film Institute. It's a great quote. It is. Not as good as my favorite line in the movie, where we have heard the stage manager yelling at the actors the entire time, and then right near the end of dress rehearsal, hits on his chorus girl, who looks at him and goes, quiet, please. God damn, what a line. Uh, what a dig. Perfection. One of the lines in the song Shuffle Off to Buffalo is when she knows as much as we know, she'll be on her way to Reno while he still has the dough. So this was referencing the common practice of moving to Reno, Nevada for a short stay to obtain a divorce. I'm at the time of the movie's release and for at least 25 years afterwards. Nevada had some of the most lenient divorce laws in the country, especially compared to New York, where there were few accepted grounds for divorce. The standards of proof for those grounds were so high as to be almost impossible and even then would take a year to be final. By contrast, Nevada granted divorce for almost any reason after only a six-week residency period. Yeah, it is wild to think about the fact that at-will divorce wasn't a thing until like the 70s. And it's like New York is still one of the worst states to get divorced in. (laughs) In fact, they referenced this exact thing in Mad Men. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Betty goes to Reno. Well, you know. Yep. When Billy Lawler tells Peggy Sawyer that he has liked her since she saw him in his BVDs, he is referring to a type of underwear popular at the time. The actual brand company was Bradley Voorhees and Day, then shortened to BVD. 
brand name still exists, although it has been acquired several times, including by Fruit of the Loom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understood that reference. I understood that reference. <laughs> both Harry Warren and Al Dubin were credited on screen for both music and lyrics, but no songs were credited on screen. However, Warren wrote the music for all the songs recognized and listed in the soundtrack, and Dubin the lyrics for those songs which were sung. God damn. Again, weird. <laughs> These are like classic fucking songs, and they were written for the movie? Mm-hmm. Because... There is a common practice, especially with some of these musicals. They're like, mm. we're going to take some of the most popular hits. Some of the standards. And then reverse engineer the plot around it. Yeah. And they're essentially like jukebox musicals with those like Mamma Mia a Rock of Ages is now. So, yeah. But this isn't that. And fuck. Mm-mm. A lyric in the song Shuffle Off to Buffalo reference someone named Winchell will know when the couple becomes pregnant. This is a reference to Walter Winchell, the first syndicated gossip columnist in the U.S. The groom in Shuffle Off to Buffalo sequence sings to the bride, I'll go home and get my panties. You'll go home and get your scanties. In the early 1930s in the U.S. and Europe, the word for undergarment, panties, was synonymous with undies and applies to both men and women. Interesting. Interesting. I don't love that word. I don't like the word panties. (laughs) It's, uh, It's a little weird. As a publicity stunt, a train called the 42nd Street Special traveled from Hollywood to New York City, arriving in time for the opening at the Strand Theater on March 8, 1933. On the train were Warner contract players who were called to the stage after the movie was shown. Included were Joe E. Brown, Tom Mix and his horse, Betty Davis, Laura LaPlante, Glenda Farrell, Lyle Talbot, Leo Carrillo, Claire Dodd, Preston Foster, and Eleanor Holm. <laughs> That's cute. Gotta have a show after the movie. You have to have a show along with your premiere. We do that shit all the time nowadays. So I'm like, that's cute. This film was shot over a period of 28 days. That's fucking nuts. That is insane. It also speaks to the fact that, so it was shot over 28 days. Mm. I would love to know how long the fucking rehearsal was. It's true. But also, but like these are studio people. This is their job. You learn a routine in a day, you're done. Go, go film it. The end. Like that. that's just how it works. That also is because there's a machine and everybody's constantly working. Things just get done. That's very true. That's one of the things that I remember Tina Fey talking about in I believe it was her book, Bossy Pants, about when she left SNL and would go work on film or TV, they'd be like, oh, we don't think we can get that for you in like for like a week or two. And she'd be like, really? If I was at SNL, this would be done in six hours, (laughs) which speaks to like the different systems at play and just, you know, it's all a racket. It's all a racket. Well, also SNL, (laughs) not known for being for treating the people who work on it very well. That's it's a whole different world. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like if those people can get the same type of work done in six hours, what you're telling me is bullshit. <sighs> Find us a group of people who can get it done in six hours. That It exists. I, there's balance. There's Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that those people are, uh, are being treated fairly or getting their proper rest as they should be or being compensated well. But there's just something where it's like, okay, you've got there's a machine at work here. There's something to be said for efficiency and planning these things ahead. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I, the other thing you have to think about is, so Lloyd Bacon's going to have like, you know, 10 to 15 credits through mm -hmm. 1933. That means he's filming different movies at the same time. He's doing six films a year. I mean, which is nuts. That's two yeah. months per film. Like there's stuff going on constantly. And the other thing is he's also probably doing work on other stuff that he's not even credited for because it's all the same studio. Well, perhaps, but it also speaks to a lot of times, you know, we, I, we saw this in our rehearsals. People show up and they're not prepared. They didn't do their part. And so it's like, okay, we have three hours, but that three hours isn't going to be efficient now. Yeah. And in 1933, you just get your ass fired and we'll go pull in somebody else. Yeah. We'll, we'll pull the night. We'll pull in the chorus girl who can do it. We uh -huh. don't care. They do not give a fuck. Absolutely. It's just, it's just very interesting to see this. Like, yeah, like we still see some of this bullshit nowadays, but also like, look at how much they were able to get done. And I'm not saying that was done well, but it's just like, there's something to be said for like, we show up and we're ready to go. When we say go, we're going. You can see the machine behind this movie. Sure. And it's not distracting from the movie overall, but it is a fascinating part of watching it. Mm -hmm. The cracks about Philadelphia may require a little bit of explanation. Back then, it was considered a very conservative city, a popular joke at the time, that it is so boring that they roll up the sidewalks at night, implying that there's no nightlife to speak of. This would be a Cleveland joke now. Oh, absolutely, which I love. <laughs> uh, in 1998, this film was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress by National Film Registry. Absolutely, it should be. During the Buffalo number, a woman's hand emerges from the drapes and drops a pair of shoes. Her arm then goes limp and drops palm up toward the floor. This suggests a sexual encounter. <gasps> Scandal! <laughs> In addition, all the births were previously seen to be occupied by women only, making this suggestion even more pointed. Mm -hmm. After 1934, such scenes would not be permitted in films by censor Joseph I. Breen of the Production Code Administration. Uh -huh. For the time, that scene was like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I think that's the other fun part is they're pushing that edge. They're pushing that edge of what they can get away with, mm -hmm. which is awesome. It's so much fun to watch. A little bit more trivia, but this is specifically about the chorus. This is the debut of actresses Anne Hovey and Barbara Rogers, as well as Azeel Cecil. While most of the chorus did not make a career in film, one who did was Dave O'Brien. In the number, you're beginning to be a habit with me. He was the blonde juvenile who had his legs on Dorothy's lap. He has 244 screen credits and transitioned to being a highly successful comedy writer. Um, O'Brien is very well known to cult audiences for his maniacally over-the-top performance in Reefer Madness. <laughs> nice. All right. And just because we mentioned it before, this did become a stage musical it opened on august 25th 1980 and ran for 3486 performances it won the 1981 tony award for best musical and was also nominated for best book for a musical it starred jory orbach and tammy grimes yeah i mean you know oh absolutely it's so rife to be made into a musical. It just is. To be adapted to stage. And this is one of those ones that, you know, when we've done this before, we're like, oh, well, it was a play first or it was a musical first. And then they made it a movie and then it went back to the stage and they changed things that they took from the movie because everybody loved the movie so much. And you're just like, 
nope, this was this was a book first, a book, a novel, <laughs> and then a musical. So yeah. And last but certainly not least, we have some awards. Oh, awards. This was nominated for two Academy Awards at the sixth annual Academy Awards ceremony. Good Lord. It was nominated for Best Sound, but it lost a farewell to arms. Okay. Well. And it was also nominated for Best Picture, but it lost to Cavalcade. Yeah. You know, this is a fantastic movie. Uh-huh. That also is very much not a like cinema thing. Like sure. this is a fucking rollicking good time movie. Mm-hmm. And so I totally understand if there are other movies that year that got some awards recognition from their peers. This is the equivalent of the big budget studio movie getting a couple of nominations Mm -hmm. because it was just too good to not mention. Yep. So that leaves us to ratings. And what is our rating system going to be today? Oh boy. There's some choices, aren't there? Broken ankles. (laughs) No. Shuffles off to Buffalo. You can't really do shuffles. How do you how do you personify shuffles are we gonna give it? Uh no, I think I think those those shoes that are left outside the berths for the <laughs> porter to pick up. I think the pairs Only of shoes. shoes are the best ones for us to pick here. Okay. I am gonna go with my gut mm-hmm. and say four and a half. Four and a half, okay. It's really, really good and really, really surprising. I think that's where the half comes in. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, it's not just a solid movie, but for 1933, also has all of this interesting, subtle nuance to it mm-hmm. that would feel fresh even in a modern telling. And the only thing that doesn't make it perfect is a handful of character development things, which probably weren't going to get done, and a little bit of age. But it still feels remarkably fresh. Mm-hmm. The version that's out is phenomenal and is in really good condition. It's just a fantastic movie. It is. I'm going to agree with you on a 4.5. Yeah, there's just a few acting, directing choices that I would have changed. I would have liked to have seen the relationship between Juliet and Billy. That would have done more for me. But like those are small issues that, you know, this is 1933 and they got so much good and it really wouldn't take much to update this for today. Or to even still have it set in the 30s and do it today and it still be a pretty good musical. And rewatchable. I could sit down yeah. and watch this movie again. I wouldn't hate doing that every once in a while. Here's the thing. If I was flipping through the TV and this was playing, I would at least pause for a couple minutes. It should be playing more. It should. But um, if you've got HBO Max, it's there for you. So definitely, it's definitely worth your time. Indeed. Well, until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.